Hello, I'm Evans Marajas, the Harry T. Wilkes Artistic Director for Cincinnati Opera, and my guest on this podcast is soprano Susanna Phillips, who was in Cincinnati this summer to sing The Countess in the Marriage of Figaro. We're going to be talking about discovering your voice almost by accident, how one begins a career, how one balances a career with a family life, and how to be you. Susanna, when you were growing up and finding what eventually became your professional voice, uh, were you a, naturally a mezzo as a little kid or naturally a soprano as a little kid? Uh, that's a good question. Um, first of all, thank you for having me. Oh, I'm pleasure. really happy to be here. I, um, I think I was a soprano most of the time, but in choirs, I would often sing alto because my voice was a little louder than some other people's, and so they would put me... I also really, really enjoyed singing harmony to things, oh. so I, I would often sing alto. I'm just choir. reminded of that wonderful remark Jessie Norman gave after her Metropolitan Opera debut. The next day, an interviewer asked her, Miss Norman, have you always had a large voice? And she said, no, I was born with a loud voice. I had to train it to be a large voice. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so let's let's go to that that moment or series of moments when this starts to become for you something that could be a little bit more serious than just enjoying yourself in choir. Where does the... Where does the shift start to begin to become a professional? Well, I had, um, I, when I, I grew up in Huntsville, Alabama, which is um, a beautiful small city. Well, it's becoming quite a large city now, but when I was growing up, it was about 100,000 people with the surrounding areas. So um, it was not very large. And um, my parents are both Southerners, and um, I, I grew up, hearing classical music in our house, and I took piano lessons, but I never really um, did much with it. I did a lot of other things. I was involved in a lot of athletics, and I was involved in school projects and really interested in studying. I loved I loved school. Um, but I, when I was 15, our parents took us to a, on a trip to New York City, wow. and I got to go to the Metropolitan Opera. And I had been once before, um, and... I loved it. I loved being in New York. I we went to the museums and um but I got to go and I but it was the first time that going to the opera resonated with me. Before I would really enjoy the sets um and then fall asleep because you know, being a being an eight year old or however old I was, there was not much hope for it me. It happens to me in long rehearsals sometimes today. Yes, true. <laughs> um but no, there was one. I remember this moment very distinctly. I was watching uh, Madame Butterfly, and I don't know who was singing. Um, but she was singing her aria in Madame Butterfly, and she looked in my direction, and it felt like she was looking directly at me. Mm-hmm. And I understood what she was trying to say, even though she wasn't speaking English. And I... I understood the emotion of what she was trying to impart, and I, it was very moving to me. I remember that moment. A sense of hope, a sense of determination, a sense of battling against the odds, all of those things are, that are in that aria. They all came, but what was more interesting to me was that she could do that without speaking my language, that she could do it musically and that she could do it in a foreign language, and I thought, I found that fascinating. And I loved that you could be impactful that way. And I came home 
and I began taking voice lessons. And the other side part of the story is that behind the scenes, my choir director had called my parents and said, you know, Susanna's voice is starting to stick out. You should get that thing trained. And so I went to um, the local voice teacher named Ginger Beasley, and she's a wonderful singer in Huntsville, Alabama. And she did not accept me as her student. She gave me to another student, to a student of hers, because I was very young. And training at fifteen—that's very young for a classical. Um, um, you have to be very careful with those kinds of voices. You do, yeah. and um, also you never really know how serious they're going to be, and there's there's not a whole lot there to train anyway. So I started taking lessons with this um, student who was wonderful. And then I ended up going to, um, she ended up moving away. And so I ended up studying with Dr. Beasley for the last year and a half of my time in Alabama. And my, um, and I enjoyed it. It was kind of a hobby, just as, just as, you know, I enjoyed playing basketball and as I enjoyed being on the pep squad and the cheerleader. Like that was, that was my... You were an all-American kid, weren't you? I was, totally. We had a dog. I mean, we had... <laughs> almost, you're much younger than that, but almost leave it to beaver female style. <laughs> oh my, pretty much. Um, but then my, my high school guidance counselor, when we were all applying to college, um, he, I, I was kind of saying, oh, you know, I'm going to go to... Northwestern, and I'm gonna. I really, I really love Northwestern, but um, or I'm gonna go to Vanderbilt, or I'm gonna go to Samford, or I'm gonna go to Furman, or some, somewhere in the South, and you know, go and study medicine because I always thought I wanted to be a doctor. And he said, "Okay, that's great. You should do that. Um, but you should also apply to some conservatories because if you get to one of these other places and um, you think you want to minor in music, um." you'll at least know if you were good enough to get in. Oh. He's like, apply, but not with the idea of going. <laughs> apply to see if you're good enough to get in. And if you don't get in, then you have that information when you, if you decide you want to do music somewhere else. And I, I thought, well, I'm, you know, I'm definitely not going to go to New York City, and I'm not going to go to a conservatory. And I ended up going to Juilliard because I got in, and nobody gets into Juilliard. I mean, I think it's a... It's a. It's really tough. It's very tough. It's the Harvard of music. It is, and it's. Um, my aunt said, you know, it's a lot easier to transfer out than it is to transfer in. Go, and if you don't like it, go somewhere else. But nobody gets this opportunity. Go check it out. So I went, and That's I almost really, transferred out a couple times. It's really remarkable because when you think about it, maybe that high school guidance counselor was a lot cleverer than we're we're thinking in retrospect because he may have seen or heard something in you that said, you know, if I if I get her to do it in obliquely, let it be her decision. Well, she'll he wind knew, up where he she knew needs. me well. <laughs> I went to a small school and and they all the teachers knew us very well. And yeah. he knew one of the qualities I have as a person is I I need freedom and I I need to make my my own decisions. And sometimes it takes me a long time to make it, but once I make it, I make it. And um he let me, he led me to the water and let me drink the water myself, which I think is um, a very smart way to go about it. That brings me to immediately to uh, the whole rehearsal process, because you do roles over and over again. Sometimes there are, there are signature roles for you, and theoretically, each production is different, each director is different, each conductor is different. And being the kind of thoughtful uh, process-oriented person that you are, 
What's the rehearsal process like for you when you get new information? How do you how do you how do you reconcile the sort of in some ways rather fast-paced need to get a show on its feet with your longer thought process? I love new information. I love new perspectives on people and pieces. I think um, I think there are an infinite there are infinite possibilities on how to say one line, and you should explore as many as you possibly can. And it can change on a dime. It can change in an evening. I think that um, it's it's essential because if you only have one way of doing things, that's only one way of looking at the world, and I don't think that's realistic. So Juilliard was tough for you at times? You thought about yes. leaving once or twice? Yeah, it was tough. It's not easy. And then I was surrounded by incredible, incredibly talented people. And many of the musicians had been training since they were four yeah. or three. And I had Particularly just, the instrumentalists. Particularly yeah. the instrumentalists. I, and I had picked up, you know, opera or classical singing. I didn't even know any operas when I went to college. <laughs> I had to learn an aria to audition for Julia, but I didn't. I didn't sing any arias. I didn't know anything, and I had played piano. I'd taken piano lessons from Frances Schwimmer, who was an incredible teacher in Alabama, but I just didn't know the repertoire and I didn't know the history. And I so I I felt like a fish out of water. I felt overwhelmed a lot of the time, but I also was shocked um, and and delighted by the um, the variety of things I got to explore there. I got, to, I mean, the um, the things that are leaping to mind are like the fight choreography mm. and the anatomy and the art history and the literature and the, the kind of math, mathematical approaches to Bach music and just all of these kind of side hustles that I, you know, I didn't really realize you would get to explore. And so I, I just loved being in a library and it's like flipping through music like it was a magazine. And I, I discovered all this whole other world that I didn't know about. And I loved, loved learning about it. Not the least of which was the Met was next door and City Opera in those days, long may it wave sometime in some form again, was just across the plaza. So mm -hmm. you had as much as much professional opera as you could possibly consume, your budget notwithstanding. And they gave us great student tickets, and it was. Um, in retrospect, I, you know, I, I had no idea how good I had it being right there. And yeah. I mean, being right by the New York Phil and Carnegie Hall, right down the street, it was it was an incredible place to be. So you started out as an instrumentalist. Do you learn your roles as it were instrumentally, or do you sit down and plunk it out of the keyboard yourself. How do you how do you crack a new role for yourself? What's your method? The first thing I do is I translate it. Um, I go in and I kind of figure out what the story's about. And then I sit down at the piano and I kind of plunk through it. It's not, I'm certainly, I would never call myself a pianist. I'm not I, I've heard pianists. I know what they sound like. I'm not that, but I can. You can I can sit get at the piano through. and play through your part. Yeah, I can get That's through what I need to get through, and I enjoy it. And um, so that then I learned I learned the part musically, um, and then I put the words and the music together, and I coach that, and then I'll listen to a recording um, to get a point of reference. Um, but I don't listen to many before I before I figure out my feelings about it because I feel like that's important. And then, I, then I'll listen to stuff and kind of get, get influences and, and 
hear what other people do, which is exciting because, yeah. So your schooling happens. How do you get started in the in the hurly burly world of professional opera performance? I, I had a, I had an amazing time of it. I, I think I I one of the things that has helped helped me in the beginning was that I I never I didn't grow up with this dream of being an opera singer. I didn't have this need to perform. Mm. I didn't I, I really just really liked the music and <laughs> I really enjoyed singing and I thought to myself, well, I, I'll do this and as long as I can and then I'll go do something else. I've always had that. Uh, then I'll get a real job. Yes, <laughs> absolutely. Um, I um, I just never, I never really thought about it. I never put so much pressure on myself to, to feel like I needed to make a career out of it or make a thing of it. And um, so I, but in doing so without that pressure, I feel like I was a little freer to do things. Like I would, I went and did the Operalia competition to Domingo's do competition in Spain. Yes, right? to just to do it. I mean, I, I had no idea about it. I had, I had, I, and then I was with people who had heard about it for years and years and years. Or I went and did the med auditions because I was went to Alabama to help my mother. She was having a minor surgery, and they happened to be right down the road. And I thought, well, nobody gets through their first time, so I'm going to get that out of the way. So I went and did it, and I got, and I won. <laughs> But it was kind of it, that's that's how I I thought I didn't think of it in a in a planning way. But I I got into um, I had tremendous help along the way. People, amazing mentors who who helped me along and and put me in places where I probably shouldn't have been. <laughs> but um, I made it, and I I um I got to Music Academy of the West when I was in college, and, and Marilyn Horn is a tremendous woman and a force and really helped me um, with some, some of my perspectives. And um, Matthew Epstein helped me, and my voice teacher, Cynthia Hoffman, helped me, and they all, you know, and then I got a manager, Matthew Horner, helped me, and it's just it's this, this group of people that really were wonderful to me. And um, then I went and did... Uh, I got into the Young Artist Program in Chicago, so I did the Young Artist Program there for two years, and then I began singing, and um, I, I've been singing ever since. It sounds like you have always been able to treat it as an avocation that pays. Rather That's what than, it feels like. Than a career. That's what it feels like. I, I don't I don't see it as a career. I, it is a career for me as a job sometimes, but one of the things my father taught me, um, he's a He's a rheumatologist, and uh, he works a lot. And I asked him when I was growing up why why he worked so much. And he said, well, I really like my job. I really like what I do. And he he, he never he, – he really enjoyed it. And I, I took that to heart. And I, I really enjoy what I do. I look forward to coming to rehearsals. It doesn't feel like um, – I've, I've never wanted to make it – I, I, I've never wanted to make it a job. I've wanted to make it a life. Serious fun, someone calls it. Sort of. Mm-hmm. Yeah, sort of. So eventually, uh, through some good fortune and also hard work, you have the opportunity to set foot on the stage of the Metropolitan Opera for the first time. Mm-hmm. Can you recall some of the emotions surrounding that, the experience of being on that stage, the most important one in our country? I mean, I can recall, I can recall it from 
couple months ago because that every time I step on the stage, I have the same feeling. It doesn't ever go away. It's this incredible place. the The hall is warm. the The lights are bright. The um, feeling is is it make, make my arm my hairs are standing up on my arm just thinking about it. It's an it's got a spirit that's uh, it's amazing. How have you gone about uh, finding those pieces that fit you like a glove? You're singing the Countess and the Manager Figaro with us this summer, which is perfect for you. Vocally, I love that part. Vocally, dramatically, everything. What's your what are the litmus tests you use to say? I can do that. Mm, I shouldn't do that. Or I might do that later, but I shouldn't do that now. Or, oh, no, never that. <laughs> <laughs> I think, um, well, I've certainly made my own mistakes. Many people, I've sung things I shouldn't have sung. I've, I've tried things I shouldn't have tried. But if you don't try, you don't know. And I, that's how I, I'm somebody that learns things the very hard way. I can't learn them with somebody telling me something. I have to go out and figure it out myself. There's a little stubborn streak, oh, isn't yeah. there? Oh, yeah. Right? My son has it, too. It's <laughs> Now it's that I see it as a parent, time. it's, yeah. <laughs> um, but I, I, I my, my bellwether, my bar is if I feel like another singer can sing and portray this character more fully and better than me, I don't do it because I don't, I don't, then, then they should do it. I shouldn't do it. But if I feel like I have something unique and specific to say, or then, then I feel like I can do it. Like characters like Birdie in Regina, that's somebody, I know that character. I know that person. And well, musically, she's from Alabama. It, yes. It's set in Alabama and it's a very, she's such a, incredible character that I I just love I loved being in her skin and I loved being in her music it was felt wonderful musically or somebody like Musetta I know that person I know who that person is and also musically I feel like I can I can do it well and I, I feel like finding those parts or Fioriligi or or Agrippina or or people that that um I feel like musically and dramatically um connect with me in some way. The role of the Countess is a gift for a soprano. You have one of the greatest entrance arias in all of opera, and it's short. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Not easy, but short. Mm-hmm. And then you have another completely sort of, uh, I won't call it generic in the pejorative sense, but you have a traditional Shana kind of aria that explores the depths of the character even more. Uh, when you first started studying the Countess, what were some of the things that hit you about the way Mozart wrote this, the way that Da Ponte uh, chose the words? What are, what was your, what was your discovery process for for the Countess? Well, um, the Countess is um, so fun. Wow. <laughs> it's you. You always have to remember that she's Rosina. You mm. can't ever forget that. She used to be una voce poco fa. Exactly. That's always there, and that's always underlying. And um, it's a wonderful thing to play against sometimes because you see how far she's gone from that character. And, and playing with playing with the distance from that early Rosina is what's interesting in lots of different productions because it can be that she's still that still that fiery person all the time and just um, or that that she's so far away from that young fiery person that it's 
the wistfulness of remembering who she used to be and how far she's come from that can be very interesting to play and, and kind of the whole spectrum in between. And there, um, I find that very interesting. It's um, uh, musically just a, it's a, a joy. It's a joy to sing. I mean, that second act finale is just <laughs> amazing. <laughs> Every time I feel like we find something new and I love that, that purpose of discovery. Yeah. When you have taken on a new role that doesn't fit you, what are some of the bellwethers that, what are the, some of the alarm bells that go off that say, okay, I've done this, um, that's one for the history books, I'm not going back there. Are there things that about a role or things about it musically or dramatically that, that cry you off from a role once you've tried it? Yes. Um, if, if it doesn't, if I don't feel um, good vocally, mm -hmm. then that's obviously a no-go. Sure. Also, if there's something in the character that I just don't connect with, um, or I don't feel like I can find something that makes me want to play that person, that makes me want to 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 do it, if it feels flat or it feels doesn't feel full, I I I don't I can't do it. And if I don't if I don't want to do it, I, it will never it will never come across. Right. If I don't feel like I need to do it, it will never work. So there are two potential roles for a singer of your temperament in Don Giovanni. Donna Anna and Donna Elvira. Donna Elvira is sort of the crazy lady, mm -hmm. but really. Oh, I passionate. don't think she's crazy at all. Well, I should. That you're, you're absolutely right. She's not crazy. <laughs> she's she's crazy emotional. I mean, she's passionate. And she's, but she calls it like it is. Yes, she's, she's the truth. She's the truth teller. She is. And then there's Donna Anna, who mm -hmm. is who lives in her own sort of maybe idealized world. Um, are you one or the other or both? Both. Uh -huh. Both. I've sung them both, and I love them both. I think, mm -hmm. for different reasons. I I I enjoy, um, but if I if I'm honest, I prefer Elvira. She's got I, so much spunk. She does. And she I, calls I, out Don Giovanni for what he really is—a cad. She does, and she's strong, and she's thoughtful, and she's but she also is vulnerable, and yeah. she also shows this soft side the soft feminine beautiful side to her and i feel like she's the most in that opera save don giovanni or maybe even including him she's the most multifaceted character yeah. and i i find her and in, in, in infinitely interesting mozart's heroines in general i think are very very sympathetic it's mm -hmm. if you look at pamina and the magic flute susanna and the countess in the marriage of figure don elvira and donna anna in in don giovanni Fiordaligi, yes, Fiordaligi, especially in some ways, because she's got she's got a steel backbone until it breaks, mm -hmm. and then even when it breaks, you feel such pity for her because you know that there's something inside her that says this still isn't right. I know, I know this isn't right. Mm -hmm. What do you think in general? Because you've you've sung a lot of Mozart. What are some of the qualities of the way that he and Da Ponte in the three Da Ponte operas, or he in general? Um, does well by his female characters. Well, he gives them. He he's he's true to females in the sense that he really lets them be multifaceted and lets and leaves open so much musically to interpretation. So so it's not dictated which one way to do it. And I really love that about his writing, especially. I find it to be, um, but in doing so. He somehow musically supports every decision 
it it it, it just comes through and i feel like it, you know you never ever you can always add eingongs or little cadenzas here and there you can add things and and not it it totally stands on its own just perfectly done it's just it it really is wonderful so i would imagine every singer with an a curiosity and imagination particular and intelligence such as yours is always sort of looking down the road a little bit saying so what's next what's next on the horizon for me as a role or as a as something to take on what are a couple of things you'd like to do as the next couple of years roll along roles or activities things that i'd like to do i um I've, I've always been interested in Strauss. I was going to say, have you put your toe in the Strauss water? I'm, I'm water? currently testing it at home. Mm-hmm. Good <laughs> I'm for not you. taking it out for a spin yet, but I, I am. <laughs> I'm, I'm testing it at home because it feels very good. Arabella would be perfect. Arabella or yeah. the Marshallin. Yeah, for sure, the Marshallin. Or Daphne. Yeah. Or um, I just I'm, I'm interested in that kind of thing. I'm also I love. American opera. Mm-hmm. I've always felt drawn to it, and I love it. Um, well, I, I remember reading the reviews from last summer Opera Theater St. Louis production of Regina, and your birdie was a standout. She's a complicated person. She has a drinking problem, but she has such heart. Mm-hmm. Um, so in general, what attracts you to a role that you're considering? Um, I, I feel like if I can... If I if I feel like I know the if I know the person and this person um, makes a journey through the piece, um, that's attractive to me. I I really like it. If um, I don't think they need to be good or bad, but I feel like they need to have some kind of journey mm-hmm. throughout the piece. I think that's very interesting. I don't. I mean, there are some soprano uh, villains and some and there are lots of comic roles. Does where does your temperament take you? Would you like to play a, a bad girl? At some oh point? yeah, and I love playing comic roles. I I, <laughs> I love being funny. I, it's so much fun um, to do that. I mm-hmm. find it you know it's 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 um, you have to be very specific when you're doing in a way to me uh, for myself. I, I have to be more specific when I'm playing comedy than when I am doing drama in the sense that drama is a little bigger a little rounder and comedy is witty and needs to be timing sharp. is everything timing is everything yeah. so it takes thought thoughtful in my conversations with composers who are con- considering either writing their first opera or writing opera almost every one of them says don't ask me to write a comedy it's much harder much harder <laughs> much harder it's much harder to pull off but it's satisfying when you do absolutely <laughs> so when you um when you take on a new role that has no precedent, meaning that uh, it's a it's a world premiere, I mean, you know, there's nothing wrong with taking advantage of the recorded evidence of your colleagues and of the past. Mm-hmm. But if you if you have the gift of actually creating a character from scratch, does your study process differ? Um, well, in some ways, it's it takes a lot of the pressure off. Um, ah. When you're doing a role like the Countess. Um, there Everyone are 100,000 people before you going back to Mozart. Yes. Got and it. no matter what you do, no matter what you sound like, you won't be Kiri Takanova or you won't be Renee Fleming or Carol Van Ness. You will not be Leontine Price. No, what, no matter what you do, <laughs> it will not be the way they did it. Right. And it shouldn't be the way they did it. 
Um, but many people have a version in their ear, <laughs> and I'm guilty of this too. I listen to the Rachmaninoff Piano Concerto, and I, I, you know, I have my specific pianist that I listen to that I, you know, love. And I don't really want to hear anybody else do it because that's that's <laughs> the spoiled. version I you spoiled yourself, yeah. Yes, but it is a lot of pressure on a singer to have all of these kind of, for lack of a better word, perfect versions yeah. out there. Ghosts, and you're doing too. ghosts, and you're doing a live. You're doing live. Anything could go wrong. <laughs> yeah, and sometimes does. Seven sometimes <laughs> does, and. Um, you have to shake that off. You have to let that go and find that inner place where you just say what you have to say and are okay with that and are okay with people thinking it's and comparing it to other people. When you're doing a new role, you don't have that weighing on you. You get to do it you get as to be a the, version. You get to be the standard setter. Yes, and you get to do your version of it. And that's the version that is out there. And it's in, in a way that's very exciting and very very fun to do. Also, you get to oftentimes talk to the composer and ask them questions. I mean, I've met many conductors who think they talk to Mozart about things, and but at the end of the day, he can't. So, <laughs> but you, when you can actually ask a composer, what did you mean by this marking? What is the, what does this swell mean? How do you want it? I did a wonderful piece by Kaya Sariaho called La Moudouin, and she was in the rehearsal room every day and because of that I walked up to her and I said okay do you want a long straight tone thing here do you want where do you want the vibrato to start what kind of vibrato do you want do you what kind of slide do you want up and down and she was able to demonstrate what she was going for and it made it all so clear and so lovely and there are challenges to having the composer there as well because they can get very involved and and some you know you don't always want to see how the sausage is made but they also but having them there is a tremendous gift too one of the things that i'm privileged to do is to stand backstage during rehearsal sometimes during even a performance and watch that transformation of a singer standing off stage getting ready to go on and that thing that happens when they go into the light. What's what's your psychology between getting ready to go on and being in the light and on? But what's going through your mind as you're as you're getting ready to march into the arena in front of the lions? <laughs> oh goodness. I, I don't know. I think my mind is blank. I I, hmm. I don't um, I don't really know because I I don't I don't go through my lines because they're already there. I don't um, go through the music because it's already there. I don't, I don't go through the staging. I just kind of, I think I just get into that zone. So, I get into that person and just be, be it, I think, is where I am. It's, it's fascinating for me because the, the, whole, the, whole, the whole artificial and theatrical world is also a world that is, and I, I, use, this, I use this word with care but with affection, there is a certain magic that happens. Something in the air changes when you are in the presence of a performer on stage whom you know is fully immersed in the, in the role. When you're sitting in the audience, I call it active silence. It's those moments where I noticed it in the rehearsal last night in Porgiamor. I also noticed it in the rehearsal last night when Susanna finally gets to sing her big aria in the fourth act, De Vieni Non Tardar. And it was a, an empty theater except for the technical personnel, but the mood changed. Mm -hmm. Both times there was a kind of active silence where 
through the power of your voice and your stillness, it's like you made the entire world seem very small at that moment. Mm -hmm. Do you think there's, how, is, there a way, is there a way to practice that? Is there, when you're, when you're studying a part, when you're studying your voice in general, does it ever enter your mind that part of what you're trying to achieve is to, for lack of a better way of putting it, mesmerize the audience, just get them to stop? Yeah, um, yes. I think it's a process, and I think you, you can't skip the process. Um, what, what mesmerizes me as an audience member is when it is still. But being still in as a performer is very similar to being still and peaceful in your own life and life in general. It's very challenging, and you have to consciously be brave enough to do that and not um, and not allow and not give in to the outside noise. I, I, one of the moments that I absolutely adore is in Fioriligi's aria, Per Pietà Ben Mio. It's, there's this one moment where there's real silence. And that moment of real silence right before it comes back to the A section is, is just incredible. And I often play with the length of that silence. Because it's yours to command. It's my, yeah, as the singer, and that's rare. <laughs> um, <laughs> the conductor has to wait for you for once. <laughs> yes, and it's, it's rare, but it's, it's a wonderful moment to play with because it, um, that's when you know if it's there. And I think, I, I'm, I'm sure many singers will say um, many answers, but for me, you have to be brave and still and calm in yourself and very thoughtful and very sure of what you're trying to say, the very simple, sure thing that you're trying to say. And then you just be in that moment and not try and go out to the audience, not try and um, grab them, not, not try and be actively out there. And if you just allow them, open up yourself and allow them to come to you, that's where that active participation happens. Um, if you try and go to them, it becomes passive immediately. Yeah. Singer before kids, singer after kids. How has it changed you? <laughs> Besides now you get your sleep patterns back. But. <laughs> oh, gosh, I mean, even it, it has changed me in, in utterly in every way. You it, should say your kids are still pretty small. They're one's, very small. One's I, three so and I, one's... One, one and a half, yeah. and I'm married to, so I have four at home. Blended family already. Blended family, <laughs> and um, it is it is uh, all the things. It is it has brought me the, it has changed my perspective in life, utterly. Um, I love being a mother. I love being a stepmother. I love being a wife. I love all of those things. Um, I also am a musician, and that's who I am too. So reconciling those two has been a learning process. And again, I, I have made many mistakes because I, I'm just trying to figure it out. Um, like I guess everyone is. I talked to, I, I, I was uh, working closely with Renee Fleming when she, uh, when her first child was already a small child and during the pregnancy and the birth of her second daughter. And uh, she talked a lot about in those days about how it it calms you because 
There's all the noise that's going through your head as a performer, but there is a small creature now who is totally dependent on you, and it sort of, it doesn't make, make your professional life any less valuable or any less important, but it gives you more of a perspective on a larger on the larger rhythms of life, mm-hmm. and also on what it means to be responsible. Very much so, and it also um, allows you to focus differently mm. because the opportunities to practice and the opportunities to rehearse are not uh, endless. Endless, so you can when you are there in rehearsal, you are on. And when you're practicing, you're focused and on so that when you're with your children, you can be with them totally. Do you practice a little at home? I do. Do they like the sound of your voice? Sometimes. <laughs> Sometimes. And when they don't, how do they make their opinion They known? say, it's, Mommy, stop singing. Don't <laughs> practice, is what they'll say. And it's, it, it, it is distracting. And so it really is... It changes everything, but it also lets you release some of those, those kind of singer neuroses. Yeah, it lets you release them because at the end of the day, it's all going to be fine, and it is music. It's not heart surgery. Like it's going to be great. It's going to be wonderful, and it's going to be a version that's wonderful. And as as a person, I'm very detail oriented and hard on myself about about doing the best that job that I can possibly do. So it has helped me relax a little bit mm-hmm. um, and find find a little bit more of a balance. I've only worked with you in two on two occasions now, once in Atlanta and now here mm-hmm. in Cincinnati. But I've noticed in both rehearsal periods in the process, and it's this is true with almost every production. Um, there always seems to be one or two people for whom. Uh, who set the tone, the sort of either it's a kind of frenetic atmosphere or an overly jolly atmosphere or a focused atmosphere. You're a tone setter. Am I? I? <laughs> yeah, I think one of the things I noticed in rehearsal, when you're in rehearsal, there is it's almost like someone has, has put a bomb, B-A-L-M, uh-huh. over the whole process because of your own quiet centeredness. And I think that, I think that radiates to other people in the room. And it's not like mom's here. I mean, you know, because mm-hmm. something sometimes what happens in a rehearsal room when I come in the room because I'm the boss, the the room changes. Probably, maybe not always for the better. Mm-hmm. People get a little nervous, which is ridiculous. But I notice when I watch you in rehearsal and I watch the people around you that there's a sense of okay, let's just chill a little bit. This is this is work. We're going to have fun doing it, but we're not going to get all exercised about it. Mm-hmm. Do you notice that you have that effect or no? No. No, that's... <laughs> <laughs> but I notice people who have that effect. Mm-hmm. I mean, I'm working with Susan Graham, for example, she has that effect. She's fun and so funny and joyful in her work and serious about her work. Mm-hmm. She works. You know, she's not there to fuddle around. Yeah. She's there to get work done in a very happy way. Yeah. And that's and I admire that. It's hard to do. Words to live by for any young aspiring singer. Because it's not just about the technique. It's about making the process productive and enjoyable for everyone. Yes. Yeah. Because at the end of the day, we're doing, right now, we're doing the Marriage de Figaro. It's an ensemble opera. It is, at the end of the opera, there isn't one person standing there taking a bow. It is 10 of us standing there taking a bow or nine of us. I don't, it's, it's, and we're all equal. It's, Mm -hmm. it's a, it's a real ensemble piece and Mm -hmm. you cannot do it if one ensemble member feels left out or feels lesser than or better than. Yeah. Tries to leave everybody else behind. Yeah. It's not, it does not work as a, as an opera. 
And and so for me, my my goal is, I also is to make sure that that environment is a place where the environment that I'm in and things that I can influence are are things that where everybody feels included in the way that they would like to be included. Also, part of the reason I love doing what I do is the relationships that I get to form with uh, with my colleagues because these people I meet over and over again over throughout my life and they become your extended family. Mm-hmm. And I mean our our Bartolo in this production I went to college with him <laughs> and and we've seen each other over the years and we've been there when our children were born and we've we've been there you know he he became a lawyer and then he came back to singing and it's just it has just been so gratifying as a person to have relationships like that um throughout throughout your life and and our life is different it is not normal we're like zebras it's you walk into a room and people are really interested in you and also don't know how to talk to you because it's a totally different world and and uh it's a wonderful world and it's just it's just different and so these relationships that we form we form are are everything i remember remembering a silly story that the wonderful guitarist julian bream once told he very celebrated English concert guitarist, and uh, he lived in a small village outside of London. And the village had one rather famous son before Bream. It was the actor Robert Morley, sort of the tall, avuncular. He always played sort of the dad, and he had quite an American career. And he was being honored in the village where he was born by a plaque being put on the town hall at some point, and he came back to the town. Now, he's an actor. And he said, I have a request. Could I visit the little cottage where I was born? I haven't been there in 50 years. So the mayor makes the appropriate phone calls, and they go to this little cottage, and they knock on the door. And who answers but Julian Bream, who is the owner of the cottage? Mm-hmm. And Bream says, hello, Mr. Morley. I'm very happy to welcome you here. He says, well, I'm very grateful that you're willing to let me come back to my ancestral home. And they start walking around. And finally, Morley has the... English uh, rectitude, but he finally says, so Mr. Bream, what is it you do? And <laughs> Julian Bream says, well, I play the guitar. I play classical music. And Morley says, oh, you make a living at that? Mm-hmm. <laughs> so it's an odd profession. We, have, we live in a world where um, we don't have nine to five jobs Mm-mm. by any means. Uh, yes, I mean, you have all the same interests that other people do, but you have this other rather unusual thing that it's not easy to explain. It's people. very difficult to explain. How you do and the lifestyle do. is very difficult to explain. I remember I, I, when I was dating my husband, we went on a vacation, and I, I didn't practice for two days in a row. And to that point, I had never done that in my life at, since I started school. Wow. And I remember saying to him, it is the weirdest feeling to not practice. I don't feel comfortable. I don't feel good. This mm-hmm. is not a good feeling for me and having children and all that has happened a few more times (laughs) but it's it's um it is and he he looked at me like i was insane he was like well i don't understand that (laughs) you know they don't because he's not a musician he's not a musician yeah yeah well they learn sooner or later (laughs) in your own growing up as a performer uh, and of course especially living and studying in new york are there singers that you observed that you use either as role models or as people you say, oh, you know, when I grow up, I want to be able to do that, or oh, I can learn that from her, 
the way he does that. Are there are a couple of people who have influenced you in a positive way. Oh, absolutely, way? absolutely. Um, goodness, um, many people. Hmm. Uh, Natalie to say hmm. is one of them. She, I have such such respect for her. She is an incredible singer. Um, has left singing and is now an actor. I had the privilege of covering her several times, which was absolutely hilarious because she is five foot nothing and maybe a hundred pounds soaking wet, and I'm not. <laughs> I'm, you're I'm almost six feet. And, yeah, you're taller. Um, and so it was all, and, her, <laughs> and vocally we're also very different. I mean, it was just hilarious. But but I am so grateful for those opportunities. I covered her, I think, three times, and I got to know her in those process. And she's very open yeah. and very. Um, um, forthcoming with challenges and opportunities and happiness and all all the things. Her husband is also an incredible singer, and I've worked with him too. So it's been a wonderful to know them. But in talking to her over the years, I, learning about how she explored her voice, and she had a, a very particular kind of voice where it was very light and high. And then she had done everything. She'd done all the roles. She'd done all of it, and she wanted to try other things. And I remember when I was covering her as Violetta, I asked her, because people were starting to ask, why is she doing this? Because it's a much lower part, and I, I, so I just asked her. I said, mm -hmm. why, why are you exploring this? Are you doing it to see where, because you don't think you have those notes that are in the high vocally anymore, or are you doing it to explore the character? What, what is it? And she goes, I'm just trying different stuff with my voice. I've done all the stuff I've wanted to do. Sure. That is that, and I'm bored. I want to try something else. And so she did a ton of stuff that people wouldn't necessarily have thought of her immediately for. And I loved watching her explore that and try different things. And she did an incredible um, um, Cleopatra and Julius Caesar, which is not something that would immediately leap to mind in thinking of Natalie to say, but she was beautiful in the part. It was gorgeous. And we do have a tendency, I think, as audience members to. And it's in our age of specialization. Uh, we do have a tendency to negatively pigeonhole artists sometimes. And we put our own straitjackets on that are unfair. It, it's true. You're right about that. Um, and sometimes it's, it's, it's good to do because you can clearly define how mm -hmm. you hear someone. But it is interesting. I mean, I, I one of my favorite um, versions of The Marriage of Figaro actually has a light soprano as Carabino and has a full soprano as Susanna, mm -hmm. and has a dramatic soprano as the Countess. And it's- it's It works. Gorgeous. And yeah. I I, often, I would love to see the, the marriage figure where the three women change every night and they, they just rotate the parts because it, 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 that's, they can all be, all be sung by all different kinds of voices. And, and probably in an opera house in Germany of yore, when you were a member of the ensemble or even the, the vaunted days of the Vienna State Opera in the 50s, it probably happened regularly. Right. Oh, tonight you're Susanna. Oh, no, tonight you're the Contessa. Mm -hmm. Oh, tonight you're, 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 uh, yeah, you're it's Carabino. Just, there's so many ways of doing things. But I also, just to finish up with Natalie to say, she, the way she, she has children and talking to her about that process mm -hmm. and, and, and that whole thing. And she once said, you know, I, I should have chosen. I should have chosen to be a mom or to be a singer because they both tore me up. Hmm. And I thought that was very interesting because she's a wonderful singer and a wonderful mother. So it's it's interesting. And also, um, Renee Fleming obviously is a is a tremendous um, leader in our field, but also very empathetic and very interesting 
and thoughtful person to talk to about a lot of these things. And she is one of the most thoughtful singers, I, one of the most thoughtful individuals I've ever had the pleasure of knowing because she doesn't do anything without thinking about it. Mm -mm. She's, and that doesn't mean she is not spontaneous because in performing she can be very spontaneous, but she's, she's an incredibly thoughtful person. She is. You know. And consider it. Susan Graham is yeah. somebody that I, I just I you admire. Pick all, you pick all the good ones. <laughs> They're wonderful people. They're yeah. one, but also Marilyn Horn. I remember I was expecting my um, second child. Yes, I was expecting my second child. And I saw her and she, we had this long conversation. And she looked at me and she put her hand on my stomach and she said, I'm so happy you didn't skip this i'm so happy you didn't miss this because in especially when she was coming along it was a choice uh, it was either you have your career or you have children foster cozy there was not there were very very few people who stayed in the business after having children now it's much more common and it is still incredibly difficult there are logistically financially it's all the things and also you're splitting your time and you're away. I've been away from my family for weeks, and that's not that's not easy. But the long view is that being a singer makes me a happier person, and makes me a better mother, and makes me a better wife. It makes me a, it fills something in me that I don't want to ask my family to fill because they can't. And so when I go and I'm with them, I'm a much more whole person. And yeah. So when it comes to the day of performance, uh, do you have any little rituals that you pursue? Do you sacrifice small animals in the backyard? <laughs> hide under the covers all day? No, eat a steak I, at four o'clock? I, I, I sleep. I sleep in. I sleep in. I try not to talk. I mm -hmm. um, have. I'll go to the gym, mm -hmm. and then I'll have a good meal at like a late lunch. That's a good meal, and then I won't eat again until after the opera and. Um, uh, yeah, I don't have a, I don't have a huge set of strict things. I don't have a specific water I need to drink or, you know, a specific color I need to wear. It's just kind of... Your rider is pretty simple in your contract. <laughs> yes. <laughs> no Evian water being sprayed walking backwards in front of you. Right. Thank you. <laughs> makes, <laughs> makes my life a lot easier. When we have these conversations, we always end by asking our guests the same questions. It's sort of a level set. Some of them are, won't apply to you because it may not be your experience here in Cincinnati, but we'll ask them anyway, and you can say pass okay. if there's one you don't want to answer. What do you usually have for breakfast? Oh, uh, for breakfast. I love coffee. I will have, I definitely have a couple of cups of coffee, if not three. <laughs> Same um, here. <laughs> and for breakfast, I love eggs. I love scrambled eggs um, and some avocado and then some cucumber or tomato, that kind of thing. So a big protein breakfast, too, then. It's, a, it's, yeah. it's fuel for the day. Yes. Yeah. How do you deal with stress? I jog. Out of doors? Mm-hmm. Fall, winter, summer, spring. Yes, I well, I like to do on the treadmill because I like to play little games with myself. But I, huh. I, um, I jog on the treadmill or outside, depending on the day. You've talked in this conversation about mentors, a uh, couple of them in particular. Is there is there one that you would single out, particularly if you're giving a young singer advice to say, find someone who does this for you? Is there has there been someone like that in your own life? Doesn't have to be just one person. That's a good question. Teacher? 
I mean, my teacher is incredible, um, Cynthia Hoffman. She has shepherded me, shepherded me through many, many, many life things. Um, Shepherd's a great word because they 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 have that little crook that pushes you along and, yeah. and keeps you and keeps you in the on the on the right path. But it's a path that you have to choose. That's the thing. That's I think the the difficult thing is is nobody can do it for you and nobody can nobody can nobody can do it for you. You have to do it yourself and you have to rely and trust people to help you because the sound you make and what you hear is not what people hear. So that's the kind of infinite challenge of what mm. we do because we don't actually hear ourselves. Um, and even a good recording, I know many singers who say, that's not me. Yes. I don't, I don't, I don't know who that person is singing. Yes. It's a different, it's a yeah. different thing. And so kind of finding that inner strength to trust that. And mm. also, I, I, I don't know, I, 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 I feel like finding um, your path because it will be different than anyone else's path. And I think trying to make your career be some, like somebody else's, it's just not ever going to be. Mm -mm. Um, and so that's that's a challenge. What are you reading these days? Oh, goodness. I just read the most wonderful book. Um, oh, gosh, what is it called? We um, we are all completely beside ourselves. It's mm. a wonderful book. Karen J. Fowler. Um, it was delightful. I mean, not delightful. It was very kind of overwhelming in some places. But I, was, I was actually reading it in rehearsals this week. Um, I just finished that one. That's great. Memoir? Fiction? It's fiction, um, but it's uh, a fi uh, but of a, a memoir of a, of a family who, I don't I don't want to give it away, but it's That's actually fine. no spoilers. It's That's wonderful. Fine. It's wonderful. Um, are there television series or podcasts that you enjoy? Oh yeah, uh, I do. Pick I listen to Fresh two. Air just about every day. Me too. Terry Gross is my hero. She's great. Yeah. I love. I love. If I could be her, her, if I could be her, like her as an interviewer when I grow up, I'd be very happy. <laughs> <laughs> She's really remarkable. Yeah. So Fresh Air is a favorite. Fresh Air is a favorite. Uh, right now, I'm listening to White Lies. It's mm. so good, especially being from Alabama. It's it's a really poignant um, podcast. We're all, uh, well, not all of us, but I think most of us um, use our phones in ways that our parents never imagined. Is there a, an app or a particular feature of the ubiquitous cell phone that you find helpful and useful? Well, one that was very helpful on Sunday was my Dark Sky app, the weather app. I mean, it tells you minute by minute <laughs> what's <laughs> happening with the weather. And that's, that's awesome. Yeah. TMI sometimes, but, yeah, it's, sometimes, but it yeah. is awesome. Um, have you eaten out a little bit in Cincinnati? Have you found a restaurant you particularly oh, like? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. I found a really good fried chicken place right down the street from here. Oh, the yes. Eagle? Eagle? The Eagle, oh, the Eagle Fried Chicken. It is, yes. It is my downfall from time yes. to time. And Salazar uh, has a really good vodka martini. <laughs> oh, I have to remember that. Yeah. I like vodka martinis. Um, you've talked a lot about good counsel that you've gotten from your teachers, from people like Marilyn Horn. Is there is there a particular piece of advice that has really stuck with you and maybe almost has become a mantra for you? Um, I, I think it's the I think it's the advice to to. Um, to do what to do you and, and not try and do somebody else to really I mean that's hard to really find out what you do and do that favorite musician outside of the world of classical music do you have Ooh, one Dolly or two Parton. Uh, Dolly Parton 
You yes. know that a relative of hers is actually studying at CCM to be a dramatic soprano. Are you serious? Yeah, her name is Morella Parton, and she's sung with us. Yeah. Oh, my goodness. And I, I asked her because so she had the same sort of beautiful high cheekbones and the broad, beautiful face. And I said, by any chance? And she said, yeah, I am. <laughs> I, 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 I can't even talk. I am so, I just admire Dolly Parton. I admire the way she has behaved in her community. I admire... The music she makes, she she her voice is still stellar. I don't know how she has maintained that instrument over all these years. She's positive. She's thoughtful. She's impactful. She's and she's empowering. I mean, she's done a lot for the whole sense that uh, a woman can be a very successful business person. Yes, and she's honest. She's mm-hmm. very honest. She doesn't pretend to be something she's not. And I love, I love. You know, she's had a lot, ton of surgeries, a ton of cosmetic surgeries and she doesn't hide any of it she's so she said yes i've done that it makes me feel good that's what i like to do and i cannot i mean by all means i think she's wonderful last but not least um as you say you meet people from time to time who are not in our profession and uh who may ask you the question so you know well why should i go to the opera how do you answer them why not? I mean, it's it's a great evening. <laughs> it's really beautiful. It's fun to it's fun to go, and I, I, it's a fun date night. It's a fun thing to do. But it's also the thing I love about it. Um, taking away like the gorgeous music and the stories or whatever, it's kind, It's something you can do that really um, engages your mind for a long period of time, <laughs> and um, it's I, I really enjoy that. It's, I really enjoy being engaged, and especially when it's good opera, it, there's not much better. Thank you, Susanna. Thanks for listening. For more information about Cincinnati Opera, please go to cincinnatiopera.org. And please do subscribe to this podcast. For Cincinnati Opera, I'm Evans Mirages. <laughs>